When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. I'm really excited today because we realised that we have quite failed you when it comes to medieval history. We had Dan Jones and we've had a couple of little bits and pieces, um, but we haven't really paid attention to anyone from the medieval age as we should. So we're going to try and rectify that date today. We have Helen Carr with us, who is a medieval historian, television producer and writer. She's currently working on her first book, which is going to be a, a first factual book, I should say. Um, and it's going to be a biography of John of Gaunt. So hi, Helen, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. So you finally... Um, released your daughter back into nursery yesterday didn't you are you looking forward to some adult time oh my god you've no idea it's a very weird feeling and everything's so quiet and clean clean that's the main thing (laughs) yeah pretty much my carpet is absolutely destroyed I've actually had to get somebody to come in and clean it I'm not even joking have you just basically been following your toddler around with a cloth for 10 weeks yeah I know oh bless her uh, you'll probably be missing her again in a couple of days do you find you're just twiddling your thumbs like i know you're watching youtube videos before uh, <laughs> before we got on this call so i bet it's a privilege isn't it to have all this time all of a sudden yeah i think what i have discovered um really importantly is i i mean the way we were doing it before is my husband and i were sort of splitting the day so um i would have time in the afternoon and i had her in the mornings but I found that I still then wasn't getting much done because when you're working on a book or you're writing or researching, you have to build in time for procrastination and doing other things and just having a quiet coffee or going and just sort of sitting quietly somewhere or just doing some household chores. And because I had no time to do all of that, it sort of compromised. I still did that, but it just compromised my writing. So it's definitely nice to have that time to procrastinate. Oh, so let's get, let's talk about your subject. Let's talk about John of Gaunt and really get your head back in sort of a medieval space um, that doesn't involve trying to wrangle a two and a half year old at the same time. Um, So (laughs) for our listeners, tell us who John of Gaunt is um, and what we know about his early years. So John of Gaunt was the third surviving son of the King Edward III. Um, He was born in 1340, sort of at the emergence of the Hundred Years War. And he was born in Ghent, which is where he gets his name, John of Gaunt. So it came from John of Ghent. And it's interesting, actually, because he was born whilst his mother um, was held in part as a sort of hostage because the king, Edward Edward III, owed a lot of money to Flanders. And so he was... um, 
she was kept there as a sort of collateral for um, him gaining money when he went back to England and and asking Parliament to to pay for their release and and for for um, Flanders to to give the money that they promised to support his war. So he he got this really through um, a very lucrative marriage agreement. So he married, um, his first wife was Blanche of Lancaster, and she was the daughter of the Duke of Lancaster at the time, Henry, Duke of Lancaster. And Henry made a lot of money in the war, because war at that point could be an incredibly lucrative opportunity, because um, with conquest came land, there came ransom, all sorts of ways of generating income. So he managed to build um, a huge duchy, so to speak, and it was called the Duchy of Lancaster. And when he died, uh, more uh, Blanche was left... Sorry, I'll start that again. When he died, Blanche was um, left with her sister Maud, so they were the two inheritors, and his, um, his, his fortune was split between them. But then shortly after, Maud died as well, so everything was left to Blanche, and as Blanche was married to John of Gaunt, it naturally went went to him. So he's doing all right, isn't he? Um, what I do you know, I do my reading on this. I was really interested to see to what extent he he's got his fingers in everything, hasn't he? Um, so throughout the course of his lifetime, that is. So let's uh, religiously, he uh, has a relationship with John Wycliffe, doesn't he? The religious reformer. Mm. Yeah, he does, and I think thing fingers in all of these pies is a really is a really good way of putting it. And another way that I put it is that he's sort of he's sort of always in the wings of the stage play that's happening. So as the political and religious and um, social scene plays out in the 14th century, John of Gaunt was always there. He always has some sort of influence, but he's a bit of a shadowy figure. And people know so much about his time and the context of it, but not so much about him. And Wycliffe was, he was a Lollard. Um, he was nicknamed the flower of the reformation because he really sparked the early um, reformation movement i mean a lot of people think that that happened in the reign of henry the eighth but wickliffe was really sort of implementing these ideas quite early on and a lot of members of the nobility in the royal family um they they sympathized with his his thoughts he believed that um the church had too much wealth and power um and he believed that the Bible should be in the common vernacular as it as it later was. Um, so it's really forward thinking. And John of Gaunt, he yes, he did he did patronise Wycliffe and he received a lot of negative um attention because of that. And he wasn't particularly popular with the church. He has he commonly had disputes with the Bishop of London, um, who became later the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, so he didn't really, he didn't believe in the wealth of the church, yet he did have quite a conventional piety and he you would see him um, donating quite generous gifts to the church because that was common practice at this point. Um, but yeah, he was in support of, of Wycliffe and that, I suppose, the early Reformation. Let me ask you, so the biggest thing going on at the at the point at this point in history is the hundred years war um where do we stand with this long conflict um as far as his lifetime is concerned where is it at when he comes into the picture so i think it's probably worth explaining where the hundred years war began um i mean it goes it goes way way back and and he came in probably within sort of early part of it in the grand scheme um so on the ascension of Edward III, his father, there was a general monarchical belief that um, that want, the once Plantagenet lands 
uh, that were in France that were lost by King John were in fact still belonged to the English. Um, and a treaty was agreed with Henry III, but it was also, but Edward I, the second and now Edward III fought against it. Um, but it was really only under Edward III that they had any real success, which was the emergence of the Hundred Years' War. And this began over Gascony, which was once the Plantagenet domain in France, and it um, imported most of the wine that was consumed in England, so there was a quite a lucrative trade there. But um, the problem was Gascony was still part of France and it was held in fief of the French crown, so it means that it was granted, but without the English being able to fully exercise their own jurisdiction and, and they literally had it was held with a fee to the French crown um so it sort of all kicked off in 1337 um when Edward fell out with Philip the sixth of France and he confiscated another part that belonged to the English which was the duchy of Aquitaine and accused Edward III of breaking his feudal bond in Gascony so Edward used this really as an opportunity to revoke what was called Salic law um, so he claimed the throne in right of his mother and said, well, I'm really the true heir to France anyway. And he decided to to go to war. And um, it was three years later that John of Gaunt was born. And that was after the first big naval battle, the Battle of Sluice. Um, I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm not really sure. The Battle, the battle of Sluice, I'm going to call it that. Um, and so Edward actually came to meet his, his new son, um, after winning this very successful naval battle, it was all very dramatic and literally a big clash at sea between the English and the French. I did not know that we'd uh, our naval battles with them went back that far. Um, I'm going to read about that. Uh, what does he do specifically then? So it's obviously it's a hundred years long. It's still raging when he comes into manhood because they can't possibly have been at it full on for a hundred years, can they? No, no. And that's what people people think. Oh, gosh, it must have been battle after battle. But actually, it was quite hard to sort of um, organise pitch battle. It was often a case of, um, of yes, yeah, small skirmishes and raids and just, you know, burning down villages and conducting what are called chevaches, where you would literally take um, a small army of, of men on horseback and you would just raid through the countryside and you'd burn. And it was all it was all really nasty. I mean, the English did a huge amount of damage actually to um to french landscape and, and the french people yeah it's, it's going to take its toll i mean when you think that you could have like a child their child and their grandchild could all live through this and it still wouldn't be at an end it, it's a bloody long war um what do you think is the biggest moment for john of gaunt during the war so the biggest moment wouldn't have been in france for me, I think it was the Battle of Najera, which was in 1367. And that was um, a battle that he was successful with. And he fought alongside his brother, the Black Prince. It was really the first and only battle they ever fought together. But they won and they won a grand victory. Um, uh, they won a grand victory there. And they did that in support of the uh, of the Castilian king at the time, King King Pedro, um, who was considered, he was actually known as um, Pedro the Cruel, so he wasn't particularly liked. But they saw his allegiance as um, as as lucrative for, for for England, and to have an ally like Castile would have been important for um, for, for for English policy and foreign policy with with them. Um, so they were successful because he had, uh, sorry, I'll start that again. 
Um, so King Pedro the Cruel had been booted out by his half brother Henry Trastamara, who was in who was supported by the French. So really, this was a kind of roundabout way of fighting the French. Um, and the French, the French were led by a very well-known, important military leader called Bertrand de Gesclin, who was um, in, who was aiding Henry Trastamara at, the, at Najera. And then the English came in support of Pedro, and so it was a it was a really decisive battle. They managed to win. They took a lot of um, they look took a lot of sorry, lost my train of thought. Uh, prisoners. That's one of <laughs> they took a lot of prisoners. Um, and they and they and they won a very grand military victory, um, and they managed to reinstate Pedro on the, on the throne for the for the time being. Um, but after that, unfortunately, it all went it all went very wrong, and the Black Prince got very sick. Um, they went back to Aquitaine, and, and he just rapidly he rapidly declined, um, and so that was the last that was the last and only and only battle they ever actually fought together. As a football fan now, with King Pedro, I am completely fixated on the idea of our little midfielder at Chelsea in a Chelsea kit, wearing a crown and being mean to everybody in a medieval medieval battle setting. Because this is how my my mashed up brain works. <laughs> Do you think John of Gaunt's overlooked as a military commander because his older brother is the famous Black Prince? No, I I don't think that he's overlooked as a military commander. I don't think that he was a particularly successful military commander. Um, he was a very successful diplomat, but he was he. I mean, the fact that Najera was the only victory that he really managed does speak volumes. And I think that he was, yeah, he it was it was something he always wanted to be good at. And I think, but I think his strength and his real. Um, battle lay in his diplomacy skills. I think his brother was, um, he was a glorified figure for sure. And I think that he was, John of Gaunt's abilities were overlooked. I think he was, he was a much more capable man than his brother. Um, But he also learned a lot from his brother and he lived, he did live in his shadow because he was the Prince of Wales. And most younger, younger sons, younger princes at that point also would I'm currently writing about Edward VIII, so yeah, I think I totally get that. Um, <laughs> so you've mentioned his diplomacy and that being his strength. When he comes back from France, he um, he gets fully involved in English foreign policy, doesn't he? But then he manages to make himself deeply unpopular. But I'm getting the idea that he didn't really care. Yeah, it looked that way. I think he did. I think it was quite unfair. Um, so he came back from he was so he was in France in Aquitaine for a time because his his brother, um, the Black Prince, who was who was mo- meant to be in Aquitaine, was actually um, he was so sick he had to come back to England where he where he later died, and John of Gaunt had to he was he was he was appointed lieutenant of Aquitaine by his brother and he didn't really want to take on this responsibility Aquitaine was a really really difficult territory to maintain there was constant insurgents there was constant um there was sorry dog barking in the background it's really distracting me um there was constant raiding from French um, French parties, and it was a hard job. But he eventually he agreed to do it for a year, and he eventually came back. Um, so when he did come back, his his brother was really sick, and his father was also very very sick. And in fact, they they later died within a, a year of each other. Um, so John of Gaunt was thrust into this position of 
of being the the sort of main royal figure. He was essentially acting as a sort of as a spokesman. Yeah, like a regent and a spokesman for the king. And at this point, the king was he was losing quite a lot of interest in um, in politics. He was he was aged. He he'd, um, was about to suffer a stroke. He was very involved with a very influential and quite um, a fascinating mistress called Alice Perez. Um, and he just wasn't particularly he wasn't particularly involved in court politics. And so he very much put John of Gaunt in his position and he really became unpopular in 1376 um, around the time his brother died in what was called the Good Parliament, which was when it was a really long parliament. Um, there hadn't been a parliament held for years. Um, and it was a it was an opportunity for the commons to really lay all their grievances on the table. And John of Gaunt had to be the figurehead over this entire situation. And they stated their demands and he was forced largely to agree to them. Um, but he became particularly unpopular later because he undid a lot of those a lot of those initial demands, which was not the best decision he had made. Um, but I, I sort of, I, I do pity him within this at this point because during the good parliament, his brother died and he died of um, what they thought was sort of called a bloody flux, which you might think was dysentery um, there's research to say that it to, to state that it might have might have been some sort of uh, cancer um and he's you know he'd seen his brother deteriorate so badly he had to be brought into the good parliament on a pallet to kind of show his presence um and the commons were they weren't supportive of john of gaunt over this they even brought in the young future king um after the prince's death richard and made um, made Gaunt swear that he would not usurp the crown and in front of this boy and that was never a question because on the Brat Prince's deathbed he he swore that he would oversee Richard's ascension um, and there was no doubt how much his brother meant to him how influential he had been he he was he had lived with him in his youth for a while and I think that this death, death must have had a massive impact on him and his ability to handle political affairs as well. I mean, he's unfortunate enough as well, isn't he, that his nephew comes to the throne at a very young age. And even as he matures, Richard II is not one of England's finest. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Did see? No. No, he's not. <laughs> yeah, Richard was I I think Richard gets a bit... I mean, he was 
he was a bit of an asshole, let's be honest. But he he gets a bad rap in that I don't think that he had the best um, upbringing. He he lost his father, you know, at a fairly young age. Um, and he was really educated by his tutor, Simon Burley, who had a big influence later on in his um, in his reign. Um, and John of Gaunt was supposed to be really overseeing him, but he had so much... He had so much that he had to maintain as well. He was always off in Scotland negotiating with the Scots. I don't think he was ever really given much tutelage as to what it meant to be a king. Because, to be honest, at that point, nobody really... Everyone believed the Black Prince was going to inherit the throne. I don't I don't think that Richard was given enough attention. So, you know, this at that point, it would be expected that quite an early age he'd be leading some of the military campaigns or at least going on them but he he didn't go on any until he was much older and he he went to Scotland and that was that was that um so I think John of Gaunt probably didn't direct him in quite the right way but he was also brought up by his mother Joan of Kent and he was very close to her and I think I think Richard just also wasn't wasn't the military king that his grandfather had been or his father would have been um and at that point that kind of didn't mean he was particularly liked king yeah i mean it's so john of gaunt maintains this like you say this prominent role just off to the side um what role does he play in the peasants revolt in 1381 mm. see i think that this was a really important year for john of gaunt and it's it's probably more accurate to say what what role he didn't he play because he wasn't actually there during the Peasants' Revolt. I mean, the main um, destruction was in London. Um, a party of rebels, a large, large party of thousands, descended on London. Um, they wanted to be heard by the king. They wanted the king to get rid of his advisers. And one of those advisers was John of Gaunt. So he wasn't popular at this point, partly because he had um, laid claim to the throne of Castile. Um, and he had invited a lot of Spanish members into his retinue, into his court, which he held at the Savoy Palace, which was in the same area as the Savoy Hotel is now in London. Um, people didn't like that. People were quite hostile to foreign people. They found it strange to have another sort of self-titled king in the country. It was really, I mean, that is quite weird. That's That was pretty unprecedented at this point. And so he was he was sort of acting as this kingly figure. He had a lot of authority over Richard. He was he was very, very openly um fraternizing with his mistress Catherine Swinford, which the church didn't like. People didn't didn't like that he was so sort of arrogant about that. Um and people didn't really like the power that he had. He was particularly unpopular with Londoners because um of certain um merchant guilds and their how do i put it so he was particularly unpopular in london because he supported um a particular merchant's guild and there was a um there was a sort of anguish going on between two of these two of these guilds at the time so they're sort of into london politics he backed the wrong man um and people in London didn't like how much John of Gaunt liked to be involved in their politics. London was quite was was its own sort of 
um, its own faction, really. It, it, it worked differently to the rest of the country. Um, outside of London, he was a bit more popular. I mean, especially within his lands, people, the people in Leicester actually um, vigilantly defended him during during the Peasants' Revolt. Um, so I think it's really for all of those reasons. Pe- people saw him as quite an oppressive figure. They saw him as somebody who was trying to drain the country of money to pursue his own dynastic ambitions in Spain. Um, and they had had enough. The, the the revolt began due to a crippling poll tax. Um, John of Gaunt didn't initiate the poll tax. Um, he did nothing to suggest otherwise. However, I think if it got him his, his throne in Castile, I think he'd have been all for it. Um, and I think that the people did have reason to mistrust him, um, but I don't think that he actively sought to oppress them. But I think that it was just, it was his own fecklessness and, I mean, really his own self-indulgence that put him in that in that position. Um, so the Peasants' Revolt was really interesting because he his attitude changed dramatically afterwards. I mean, this is the most high-powered man in the country, I mean, almost equal to the king. It's, it was he had he did have so much power. It made people incredibly uncomfortable and felt made them feel unsafe. The monarch was the man who was supposed to have the power, but it was it was held by this 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 uncle, and he was really sort of regent in all but name. He wasn't. He was so powerful that he wasn't actually allowed to be called a regent. Richard, when he came to the throne, was given what's called a series of continual councils because they didn't want Gaunt to hold that power. So he people didn't trust him because it, it, they didn't trust that he didn't want the throne for himself. I don't think he did. I'm sure he didn't. But people didn't trust that. Because he, he's actively... I suppose they can see him trying to get another throne, can't they? Um, tell us about Castile, because you've mentioned it a few times. He does go off to try and claim that throne, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Eventually, in 1386, he finally gets his way. So after the Peasants' Revolt, he pushes for this this um, this this throne in Castile. He pushes on and on for it. And he keeps coming back to Parliament, keeps coming back. Can I go to Castile now? Can you give me some money? And he's... It, it's amazing because he changed his tune so much after 1381 in pursuit of Castile. It's quite remarkable. So one of the one of the main things he does is he relinquishes his relationship with Catherine Swinford, which is quite a big a big deal at that point. Um, he also interestingly never rebuilds his palace, the Savoy. He just leaves it. He's he doesn't actually hold a residence in London after, thereafter, which is interesting considering he's such um, an active member in Parliament. Um, and he just pushes for this um, this campaign and he starts to cre- form it into what he calls, what is called a crusade. So he starts to, to ask for um, dispensation from the Pope. Sorry, I'll do that again. So he begins to call it a crusade. So he gets papal bull from the Pope, which grants him um, a, a crusade. So he's he's going on campaign in the name of God, because this was also at the time. We're going down a long rabbit hole. This is at the time of the of the papal schism. So that's when you had a pope in Avignon and you had a pope in Rome. Does papal support equal money as well? Yeah, well, it does because it also allows you to go to ask for indulgences. So people will give you money to go 
or people might go to save them so that and fight you know without payment to save their souls etc so it's it gives you a more holy purpose rather than a i really just want to be king purpose so he um so because of you had a pope in rome and a, and a pope in avignon the pope in rome who was um on terms with the english they he granted this this crusade because because it was um henry trastamara was was on was on the throne in um in spain um and he was in support of 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 the french and his son oh no what happened to pedro Pedro got overthrown yeah they actually it was really it's so this is great they had this is so game of thrones i love it um they actually had a duke like a, a a fight brother to brother like an actual like you can imagine the more sort of you know they were on a camp so he had he uh took pedro prisoner and then um this was after black prince had become ill and had left spain so he had no support pedro was then taken back taken off the throne again he was held prisoner by his brother and then they had a man-on-man combat in the camp um so you can i don't know i just sort of imagine them like wrestling um but anyway um, but eventually he was he was actually killed by his own his own brother oh poor little pedro i was rooting for him because i see my my little footballer dude um sorry we digress there so uh john of gaunt is after the throne in castile yeah so he managed to um i sort of should have said this earlier i digress but he um he actually managed to um to get this through his his second marriage because blanche had died um his second marriage to um pedro's daughter who was called constance so he she was his eldest daughter his only heir so john of gaunt claimed the throne really through her um so he managed to to be granted this crusade and he pushed for it over and over and eventually um eventually richard said okay fine but I think that that was probably because Richard had got to a point in his um, in his reign where he wanted just really to exercise his own control. I don't think he really had John of Gaunt's dynastic ambition or England's foreign policy at mind. Um, I think John of Gaunt was a he was a linchpin at this point that was holding the country together very much. So he's a stabilizing presence. He stabilized Richard. He stabilized the nobles around him. Um, and when he went to Castile to try and claim his crown the country sort of fell apart and that's when the um Richard's rebellion all it it, it, it all um came into fruition mm. um you've mentioned a lot of women on this podcast there are a lot of them aren't there he's a bit of a player and um, I've particularly want to hear about Catherine Swinford because this causes more aggravation for him doesn't it yeah. Oh, it's, you know, it's, there was actually a really romantic novel written about this um, in the 50s, which is really popular. Um, and she be- has become subsequently a really popular figure in, um, I suppose, historical fiction or people who are interested in that sort of idea of romantic gushing chivalry. And it's, you know, it's, it's very, it's very interesting. So Catherine um, was his children's governess so the children that he had with Blanche his first wife had um, three surviving children and she looked after his two daughters Philippa and Elizabeth Um, and I think that their relationship really began when he in around 131370 so just a couple of years after Blanche died around the time her husband Hugh Swinford died um and there are sort of there are there are there's evidence of him giving her more money, giving her gifts, 
Um, and then the chroniclers start to mention her and that, you know, unspeakable whore and concubine, etc. And she wasn't very popular um, due to that. It's obviously going to be made all her fault, isn't it? Of course it is. Um, so he, yeah, he spent a lot of time with her, I think, to the point where when he married Constance of Castile, their relationship was you know, it was purely politics, there was no love there. Um, She was largely at Hartford Castle, and Catherine would really go with John of Gaunt. Um, She was often at Kenilworth Castle, which was one of his main castles, um, his main castle after 1381. Um, Yeah. I love that he has a main castle, because he has so many, yeah. Yeah, his main castle. (laughs) Um, so she even had her own sort of chamber there. Um, she had her own solar, um, and they were. It was very, very public how how together they were. Um, she also had uh, many, many children by him. Um, I can't remember the exact number. I think it's about five or six children. Um, but they were later titled the Beauforts, which is a very famous name now, and I'll go on to why. Um, so in 1381, he was forced to relinquish their relationship. And I think this was a very big deal because the chroniclers talk about it a lot. They bring the, they go into a lot of detail about how he ended his affair with Catherine. And if you look at the sources, um, he, did, he did stop his employment um, of her after this point. Um, he did, however, still treat her fairly well. He sent her some gifts still and... Um, she also had no more children after this point, so that does suggest that they had terminated their relationship. Um, she, however, later came into his life because he was unsuccessful in Castile. He uh, he did not claim the throne. In fact, it was a complete disaster. His army um, was depleted through disease and heat. Um, they drank too much wine and they got incredibly dehydrated in the heat and it... <laughs> I know many squad is, and this sounds a little bit familiar. <laughs> well, this is not usually wine now. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it all it all fell apart. So it's quite tragic. He had to. He came back to find the country um, in disarray um, under under Richard. He found that his son Henry of Bolingbroke, his heir, was um, banished, and he was. You know, he was it, it. It was kind of a sad end for him. However, he did reunite with Catherine Swinford, and he married her. His wife Constance died um, during this time, so he was free to marry again. And so, you know, around ten years after they, um, after they were separated, he then later married her. Really, sort of close to the end of his life. Am I right in saying then, if the Beauforts are theirs, is John of Gaunt? essentially the linchpin of the Tudor claim on the throne. Absolutely. Yeah, he is. And this is why he's a really important figure. I mean, the Tudor dynasty would not exist without John of Gaunt. He was the the Wars of the Roses. The Cousins War would not have existed without John of Gaunt. You know, I talk in my in my book, which is um, hopefully coming out next year, um, I talk about how Henry Tudor lands on the shore at Pembroke with clutching the sand in his hands. He came with the claim that he is, his ripe came through John of Gaunt. And so that is why he the Beaufort link is very important. And that is because Margaret Beaufort is Henry VII's mother, isn't she? 
yeah so she has him at about 13 years old and it ruins her and she doesn't have any more um but that is so yeah john of gaunt and catherine swinson don't hook up then henry the eighth does not exist exactly thank you john of gaunt for henry the eighth wow what a great guy um <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah oh. <laughs> absolutely yeah so he was he was really really um really important and but also this does it doesn't even end there so at the end of his life um richard ii is deposed the same year that john of gaunt dies he dies in 1399 and the person who deposes him is john of gaunt's son so richard's cousin so he comes back from france um with an army and Richard is is removed from power and he's placed um, in Pontefract Castle, like likely probably... It's probably for the best, really, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, he's probably starved to death. So he had a pretty, pretty dismal end. Um, and Henry of Bolingbroke took the throne and became Henry IV. So he became the first Lancastrian king. Um, so John of Gaunt's son was the... First Lancastrian king, the, the father of Henry V, grandfather of Henry VI, but then through the Beaufort line came Henry VII. So from two sides of this of, of royal dynasty, of monarchical history, John of Gaunt at this point founds. So that's kind of answered the next question I was going to ask you, which is why is he so important that we know about him um, and what do you think his legacy is? Yeah, I think it's, I think he's really, really important. And I think that it's, you know, his life shows that he was very forward thinking um, with his, as you quite rightly picked up with his support of, of Wycliffe. Um, but also, I think his, his foreign policy was really, was really interesting. I don't think that his pursuit of Castile was necessarily purely selfish. And just because he wanted to be a king. I don't think that that was the case at all. I think that he saw what his father dreamt of, which was a very lucrative and wide-reaching dynastic um spread i mean his his son who died a, another brother of john of Gaunt's called lionel was married to an italian um countess so it's he wanted to extend that foreign diplomacy further than richard really continued and i think john of gaunt was pushing for his father's ambition after Edward III's death. Um, and I think he was desperately trying to continue this uh, glorious 100 years war environment. Um, and I just, I don't think that it was received in Richard's kingship. I just think you've, I mean, I, I've heard of him and you're writing a book on him and I'm like, well, oh, book on John of Gaunt. And now it's actually a really important book, isn't it? Um, I think in such it must be such a great character to get involved in because he's so complex. I mean, he's good in ways, but he's bad in other ways. Um, and yeah, he's definitely not. He he reminds kind of like gives me shades of one of the people I researched, T. Lawrence, in that there's lots of different faces, um, and you can interpret him lots of different ways, which is really interesting. Yeah, he's he's a really interesting character, and he's been so you know to one person he's a villain to the other person he's this messiah type figure i mean he's there are so many contrasting points of view but he has sort of been painted um in this groundscape of history as a sort of richard the third type figure in that you know the evil uncle he's trying to steal the throne and that wasn't the case at all um 
I think that he was incredibly duty bound. I mean, one thing for me that comes up again and again and again is just this idea of honour and duty and chivalry. And he vigorously upheld this idea of chivalry, um, of doing the right thing, the honourable thing. So that's why, you know, did he marry Catherine Swift because he was completely in love with her? Or did he marry her because he thought it would be the honourable thing to legitimise his children? And equally, I think that the fact his son came and took Richard from the throne and replaced himself... I don't think John of Gaunt would have liked that at all. I think that he would have been mortified. He's sworn an oath to his brother on his deathbed that he would protect his son. I think he would have been furious at that. He definitely wouldn't have condoned that, I don't think. Yeah, I just he sounds like a really interesting character. Uh, tell us, you, you said your book's out next year. So I'm, yeah, I'm kind of in the last push of finishing it. Um, and yeah, I mean, all depending with the current situation... Um, I'm hoping that it it will be out next year. No, it will be out next year. I'm saying it now so you can remind me come September. You remember you said your book's out next year. It's going to be called The Red Prince. One wants to read that silly romance novel from the 50s. What's that called? Oh my God. You know, I say silly. It's actually really good. Um, Is it? It sounds like it would be a guilty pleasure. So if anyone wants to read that, what's it called? Oh, it's lovely. It's called Catherine by Anya Seaton. So if anyone is interested in Catherine Swinford, that's a a really nice book to read. And actually, funny enough, um, having sort of been so immersed in the material myself, she, she researched it really well, really well. And I think she's, she's done the period justice. She, it's one of my favourite books and it, it didn't inspire me to write about John of Gaunt, but it did um it did bring some colour to to my research and it, it, it made it all very enjoyable. It sounds like it's one you could read in the sunshine in the garden, the glass of wine or gin and tonic. I was saying, yeah, I was saying with a drink. Yeah, obviously, yeah. You don't want to go thirsty. No, no, never. <laughs> <laughs> Helen, thanks so much for coming on to talk to us about John of Gaunt and to give us some more medieval history. I've really enjoyed it. That's my absolute pleasure, Alex. Thank you for having me. And you've got no child to look after right now, so go have some wine. That's actually what I'm going to do, yeah. (laughs) Do it. It's one o'clock. It's acceptable. Brilliant. Tomorrow, we will be joined by Ryan McNutt, who's going to talk to us about his speciality. So he's an archaeologist. He's in charge of a dig site in Georgia that looks at a Civil War prisoner of war camp. Really fascinating stuff. And then down the pub, we will be discussing the greatest journey in history. I've banned existential journeys of self-discovery and all that nonsense. It has to be from A to B. And I've banned space because space would just win because it's awesome. Uh, It's a a packed pub for that one so join us don't forget you can become a patron of history hack for as little as a dollar a month just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com it will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so there now follows a public service announcement i'm horatia hornblower and i'm archie kennedy the simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders indeed the regulations are very clear in the matter It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.